Okay, so excuse my ignorance here. What is it about golf that you like so much? And that's not a loaded question. I genuinely am interested. It's a really interesting question. Uh... Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the podcast. I'm Tom Hazeldy. And I'm Craig Puxley. And in this episode, then we're going to be talking about product development processes and specifically what we're calling our favourite product development process. So unashamedly utopian, but we think there's some, some really interesting topics to cover there. So here's the product development process. Uh, it's in four stages. So the first stage is uh, collecting the problems that you want to solve, prioritizing them, talking about them, and then understanding them fully. Second phase is going through your divergent and convergent phases to come up with solutions. The third phase is about actually executing those solutions and deciding what you're going to release to the market and when. And then the final fourth phase is understanding how successful your solution has been in the market. And of course, this process is cyclical. So um, when you make that double down or ditch decision on the solution that you've got, are you going to carry on with that solution and build it out, maybe add more features? Or are you going to ditch it and uh, try a different, completely different solution? And that then is a feed into the uh, original idea sourcing and becomes its own little pipeline. So rather than cover each step in the process superficially, um, there's actually four parts of the process we're really going to focus on. Um, so let's assume we've, we've gotten a market signal, some kind of consistent feedback from customers, for example, and you've prioritised investigating that customer problem, done some discovery to sort of deeply understand the user needs, the, the pain points they might be experiencing, and validated there is actually... A problem that's worth solving and, and you can solve and, and we'll be running a, a separate um, podcast on on product discovery in, in due course um, but Craig in that requirements discussion um, what is it that, that you would need as a product designer from the from the product manager yeah this is the first time that the designer understands really what it is that, that the product manager would like them to do hmm. um, so it's all about framing and context really, to start with. And I'd say two things are most important. So the first thing is, what's your direction of travel? Right? What's your vision for this? Where do you want to go? What, obviously, what problems are you trying to solve? And it's really important to know that. But, you know, we may not need to agree success criteria yet. We may need to do a bit more discovery work, or we may just want to do some more sketches. But knowing where you'd like us to go with this and um and what you'd like us to solve that's really important so i'd say direction is the first important thing to get out of that initial requirements discussion the second thing is guardrails so you know mm. things like how much time do we have what's the scope of this piece of work how does it dovetail with any other bits of work we've got or any other features in the app um can you see this feature being an extension of an existing feature you know, have you already got some ideas for how you might want this executed? Um, or uh, do you think this is a standalone piece that, you know, we need to uh, think about as a, as a separate, you know, new area of the app or, or new feature in an existing um, part of the app that we've already got? 
So for me, it's those two things. It's which, you know, the direction of travel, where do, where do you think this should go? And the guardrails. Now, as we spoke about last week, um, it's not about, I, I would suggest, it's not about the product manager coming to the designer and saying, I'd like this. Mm. And, you know, coming to them with a sort of fully formed solution. I think that's, uh, you know, close to the, the top of the list of the things, that, um, you know, annoying things that, that um, designers really just don't like, you know. Um, you get best work out of designers where you uh, can give them a really clear brief and then give them the autonomy to go out and come up with options. I think it's about, it's a spectrum and it's about flexing because there may be certain features that you want to implement or rather certain problems that you want to solve where there are constraints around that. It could be commercial constraints, it could be time constraints, whatever, um, that, that mean that actually, you know, we just sort of, we, we, the, the solution is sort of fairly obvious to start with, yeah. right? And what we don't really want is a designer going off into the wilderness for, for two or three weeks to come back and go, yeah, no, I've, you know, I've only got the one idea or I've got several ideas, but none of them are feasible. So I think, yeah, it, it is important to have that, that clarity. And, um, but yes, absolutely, there can be room for a little bit of, of haziness. But for me, again, this comes back to, um, you know, don't bring a designer solutions, bring a designer problems. All right, so um, let's move on to sketching then, the, the kind of next step in that, in that process. And I guess my, my first question on this one, it's slightly provocative, but you know, why, why sketch at all? I mean, particularly in 2023, when there's, there's open source component libraries, there's tools like Balsamic that, where you can generate something that looks like a sketch, you know, why sketch at all, Craig? Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, you know, it's a, it's a really um, important to think about what you need to do at this stage, you know, the early on in the concept generation, you just want to get those ideas out of your head as quickly as possible. Right? You just want to get them onto, onto paper or whatever, articulate them, have something that you can show someone that isn't just in your, in your head. Um, so, and each designer works differently, right? Some designers uh, love a sketch, you know, they love nothing better than getting out their nice thick Sharpies and, and grabbing a, an A4 pad or whatever and just giving it all that, you know. Um, there are some designers who uh, go straight for things. Like I, I used to work with a fantastic designer. She was amazing. She was in a lot of ways my mentor uh, at early stage. And she'd go straight for PowerPoint. And that was her method of articulating those early ideas really succinctly and if you watch her use powerpoint it's like it was it was just she could really quickly articulate what she was thinking in her head that's what this is all about getting your ideas on paper as quickly as possible as fluidly as possible and then where the medium isn't the thing getting in the way so when i say sketching it doesn't necessarily have to be you know pen on paper um, drawing it by hand it could be any way that you need uh, that's the quickest and most efficient way of getting those ideas out of your head yeah uh, that, that makes a lot of sense and i think it in that ideation phase that can be the real the, the trigger to sort of start some collaboration right so I, I totally see your point there um and where does the the inspiration for that sketching come from where, where should it come from hmm yeah i i think this is the but the you know, not wanting to be a bit too esoteric and enigmatic, you know, uh, as a designer, I think this is the secret sauce in a lot of ways, right? There's, mm. uh, you know, th this is the, this is a similar thing to 
um, I think if you ask a musician, like where do their ideas yeah. for music come from? And I'm not suggesting that designers are, are, are kind of working in that sort of space, but certainly I, some of the best ideas for designs, for potential solutions, problems that I've come up with, I can't really tell you where they come from. They just kind of form. Um, and a, a lot of them are, are sort of forming as I'm doing something. And this comes back to the point about sketching. You know, if you're if you can um, use whatever mechanism is most natural to you, so the mechanism itself just gets out of the way. And for a lot of people, that is a pen and a bit of paper. It's just so natural. Then you, you can almost use that as a tool to help extract the idea out of your head, even though it might not be fully formed. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people say that that like creative writing, for example. The actual act of sitting in front of a typewriter or a keyboard and actually starting to type is part of the creative process in itself because it kickstarts something and it gets the cogs going. So I think that's what sketching for me, certainly, and I think a lot of designers can really help to do is really kickstart that creative process. So, yeah, I think there's a, there's a sort of black box element to where the inspiration, I think, for design comes from sometimes. I'm not, you know, I don't want to labour that point too much, but that's certainly the case for me and a lot of other designers I know. But, um, you know, design is art with constraints, right? That's, that's the whole sort of point of what we do. And though, so we need to think about those constraints. Um, and ultimately, one of the biggest constraints you've got is users' existing mental models. You know, what they think, um, you know, how they think and, and the kind of way that they, they want to operate with uh, your software based on how they operate with every other, every other piece of software in the world. So, you know, one of the most useful things that I've found certainly um, is going on sites like Mobin or 11FS Polls or any of these kind of competitor analysis where they've got really, really good extensive libraries of, of apps from across the world, from across the domains, you know, B2B, B2C. And you can just go in there and find something that inspires you, you know, look for those common patterns. Because ultimately, you, you know, it's not about creating something funky that you can put a dribble page or whatever together about. It's about creating something that your users will find usable. So, you know, there you go. You've got some examples there already. But again, this comes back to it doesn't have to be an actual sketch. It could be whatever that person feels most comfortable articulating ideas through. You know, I've run design sprints uh, in the past where that's the first bit. You know, when you get to uh, the experts talking about, you know, their, their world and some of the problems and you come to that, that first stage of actually everyone coming up with some ideas and doing crazy eights and those kind of exercises. I've worked with a lot of engineers and, and QAs and product managers, so people that are a bit more maybe analytical. Uh, in terms of their thinking, who do crazy eights just by, uh, not with withdrawn um, ideas, but just with words, mm. you know, because that's the way that they just need to articulate their idea. So no, anyone, anyone should be able to sketch. Of course they should. Yeah, I mean, the crazy eights is a great, I, I thought it was a little gimmicky, the, the idea of it, until I actually tried it. And it, it does really get people engaged with a, a user problem, engaged with different ways of solving it. Um, and particularly um, the, the different routes, you know, solutions could go down. So I think it's great in that sense. And, and what I also love about it is that it, by definition, it's time boxed, right? Eight ideas in eight minutes, typically. And, you know, you want to do some playback of those ideas. So that might take another half an hour, 45 minutes, whatever. But you ought to be able to do a crazy eight session in an hour, hour and a half at most. And that um, it, it's a great way of quickly getting people engaged, feeling like they've contributed something to the kind of melting pot of ideas. 
without that getting totally out of hand and you spend days on it or hours on it and where the hell did that time go? All right, so tell me how this initial review actually works in your experience, Craig. What, what happens in that session? Yeah, so this is the first time that a designer is really showing their ideas to someone else. So it may not actually be the first time because they might have, um, you know, shown them to another designer. You know, in my teams, I encourage designers to peer review stuff with other members of the team at all the stages, including early on as well. Um, and it's sometimes, it, you know, a designer will get quicker to the point that you're trying to make, even if you haven't been able to articulate that in the design yet, um, because obviously their head is in a similar space. So it's, sometimes it's quite good just to get that, that discussion with another designer out early. But certainly this is the first time that, that those ideas that you've got have made contact with air. And it's really at that point that some of the, you know, ones that aren't feasible, um, when they make contact with air and they don't survive, it's quite obvious straight away really. So, so this is a session that is, um, you know, fairly ad hoc. Um, it, it can be, it's fairly informal, but it's also very quick. You know, I, these initial reviews could be something that takes 15, 20 minutes, really. And it's just that opportunity for the designer to sort of set out their stall. These are the, some of the ideas I've come up with. They can articulate them um, for the first time, really. And then the, the product manager can very quickly, um, you know, uh, express an opinion about the ones that, that necessarily aren't very, um, aren't, aren't going to be feasible or aren't going to be, um, you know, something they want to continue with. And really, this comes back to what we were talking about in the last episode, you know, about roles at different times. And I think, you know, this is an opportunity really for the product manager to direct some of those solutions with a pro and that's what the designer is looking for really is is the, the product manager to come along and go i like that one i don't like that one for these reasons um i like that idea but could we combine that with something else so it's just that initial first um contact with air really that these these ideas can have um what about these other um sort of review steps though just tell me about those at a high level and how they're different for an initial review because we've on the diagram now we've got a concept review we've got a solution review that's a lot of reviews what are they all for at a high level yeah yeah so so this is something that that, that one of the teams that i've worked in recently we came up with and i think this was a real light bulb moment for mm. us actually as a squad um so I'm going to put you into the into the head of of a designer, right? It certainly means the head of me as a designer many years ago. Um, one of those classic designer challenges you've got is that you've got a great idea, you've spoken to your PM about it, they think it's brilliant, um, you've fleshed it out, you've done the full production level design edge to edge. You've then taken it to a refinement session, which is the first time really that an engineer and a QA team and anyone else really in the squad would be seeing it, um, and they just tear it to shreds. What about this state? What happens if the user clicks this button? Uh, have you thought about how we're going to test that? What does that look like on mobile? Like literally that you'll get, as, and, and it's like a pile on, you know? And it's good, right? This is the process. This is the natural process of of, 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 of um, agile working the way it should do, right? You get get feedback and you're, you're, you're critiquing and you're making sure that any design solutions you take into Sprint are feasible and solve the right problems, right? So it's, it's working. But it's it's um, not only is it massively demoralizing because you put your heart and soul into a solution as, as a designer that, that is just being torn apart. But it's obviously a waste of time. You know, it's not the most efficient use of time. And um, it doesn't matter how many times you think you know what's going to be feasible technically 
and what's going to be testable because you've been around the block so many times, there's always something that you'll never think of. So um, we came up with this idea of a concept review and a solution review. The concept review comes in really early on in the process. So it's, it's while you're still diverging, right? And you've got maybe two or three different solutions to a problem that the product manager likes the look of all of those, really, um, and they want to take them forward. Um, and the purpose of that concept review is to get the first layer of stakeholders feedback. And that first layer is engineering. Um, that could be front end and back end, depending on what kind of product you're building, QA, and then any other core disciplines in your organization. So when I worked at a fintech, for example, that might be compliance, you know, that we might need to make sure that this solution is compliant. Or when I worked for a different organization, it was our security team needed to make sure that it was it was a robust solution. And that those elements of feedback are going to help you decide which of your multiple solutions you're going to go with. So you bring to a concept review as a designer um, ideas, really. You don't bring solutions that are fully fleshed out. You just bring those ideas. And it's great because the engineers can see something that is partially formed and have feedback on it. You're getting that feedback early on as well when you can actually do something about it. You've not invested too much time in developing a particular solution at this stage as well. So it's easy for you to maybe throw out some ideas that aren't feasible or tweak a few of them, mash them together. And then once you've done that concept review and everyone's given your feedback, you do another iteration of design, again, peer reviewed and check with the PM. And then you do this thing we call a solution review. So the solution review is an actual, almost like a sign off point where you say, this is the solution I'm proposing. These are all the edge cases that we're covering. These are all the error messages. This is exactly what happens when users click on different buttons in different states. Um, this is what we're proposing should go into Sprint. So this is the full edge to edge. And this is the point at which you've completely converged on a solution. So if you think of your double diamond, this is that, that point where you've got to the, the actual solution you're going to suggest. And you get sign off from those stakeholders and usually a slightly wider range of stakeholders as well. Now, yeah. this, this sounds quite laborious, right? And it sounds quite onerous. So what we did was design it in a way that design this process in a way that it fits in with how people do their current work. So solution and concept reviews are run as JIRA tickets in our, in our issue tracking system. So these tasks, these review tasks are sat next to all the other tasks that, that for example, engineers and QAs need to do. But it also means that you can keep track of feedback in a really structured way. So we collect feedback either directly on the Figma files, if someone wants to give it there, or via the JIRA tickets themselves. So people can see the feedback that each other are giving. And it's been hugely successful um, for, for various projects that we've run it on. And it means that, again, you can cut down on meetings because these things can be run asynchronously. So if you've got distributed teams across different time zones, you can... Um, uh, you can run these, you can have these these review sessions completely asynchronously if you need to. And then for slightly more contentious solutions where maybe you're getting more questions than you expected or more questions than you normally get, that's where we suggest you run a solution review synchronously. So you'd set up a half hour meeting or 20 minute meeting to get everyone around the table um, and finally bottom out some of the more trickier questions. And the point of this is that at the back of those review sessions, you've then had something that's been that's been had feedback on it and has been verified as feasible. Um, two different stages, two different times. The team are familiar with that solution as well, 
so that when it goes into refinement or an estimation session, everyone really knows what this thing is by the time they get there. So they can just slap a Fibonacci number on it and then we're off to the races. Yeah, that, that was the key benefit from my perspective. We weren't um, in that awkward situation when you're trying to estimate or, or refine something where it just doesn't quite feel ready. It doesn't feel like the team's behind it. You're aligned that that's, that's the right solution to the problem. And that is the kind of nightmare scenario, particularly if you needed to get that thing into the sprint. When do you do t-shirt sizing and when do you do story point estimation? Yeah, the, the very different times in, in, in simple terms. I think the story point estimate, if indeed you're using story points, right, and that's, um, you know, there's many other ways, very valid ways of estimating. It could be on um, person hours basis, on team weeks or days, whatever. So it doesn't have to be story points. But, but that needs to be part of your regular cadence as a team. If you're running sprints, then you need to do that probably every every sprint or ahead of every sprint. The the t-shirt sizing is different. Um, I mean, a lot of um, software firms I work in would have a quarterly planning cycle. Um, doesn't have to be that well that way, but it that tends to mesh quite quite effectively with OKRs. So at the very least, you'd want to be doing t-shirt sizing once a quarter. I mean, in my experience, that's not often enough. I'd probably be looking at more like every month, every six weeks or so, because that, you know, most product managers or product leaders will be finding they want to kind of review the roadmap far more regularly than, than once a quarter. So you're going to be having new ideas that are coming up. Maybe the priority of things is changing. You're learning more about potential solutions or, or problems. So you're going to need to get that input a, a, a little more regularly. But it, it's not going to be quite as fixed in your um, sort of regular cadence. Can you talk to me about sprint planning and what a product manager needs to bring to a sprint planning session? Yeah, certainly. I, I think, again, maybe a little a little cliche, but I think it's part science and part art. And the, the science to me is the, the different lenses you're going to apply a, a, as a product person. And equally, you know, this this could be a BA, as you mentioned, it doesn't have to be a, a product manager, but I'd, I'd expect someone be doing this really quite rigorously and consistently so th there's a whole host of things you should be looking at so how close are you to hitting your OKRs and what are they what do you need to do to get to them um, what's your capacity for that sprint you know are there some people away for example or some people that need to work on some other stuff during that sprint and and in addition what mix of skills have you got available you know that could be front-end back-end QA you know maybe you've got a, a paucity of one of those, and you've got to work around that for, for that sprint. Um, what's your recent velocity been, and why was it that? Are there, you know, some reasons that was lower or higher than you'd you'd normally expect? Um, what else is going on in other squads or other parts of the business? Maybe there's a big release. Your squad's going to need to to help with in some way. Um, is there any urgent tech there? Urgent bugs that that needs to be dealt with? Do you need to unblock another squad or another department? So that's all of the, the science. If you consider all of those lenses, and there's plenty more besides, you'll be thinking about the right things. But then ultimately, you know, you can have that discussion, but ultimately someone's got to make the judgment about what goes in. And, and that, you know, when it comes to crunch, I would argue it has to be the, the product manager. 
there might be other situations where you're trying to empower maybe a, a BA to do it. But it, you know, the, the PM is accountable for that. And a lot of that comes down to um, a few key guardrails, but, but also some experience. So in terms of guardrails, I think the two I find most helpful are firstly the product strategy, which I would argue is, is how you're going to deliver the company strategy. What are products and engineering going to do to, to get there? Um, what problems are you going to solve? Um, which segments are you targeting, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also it, things like product principles, which I put in when I ran a, uh, one particular product department, could be enormously helpful there if you've got that alignment on how you're going to behave as a product team, but with full buy-in from engineering. You know, maybe you're going to be very customer focused or you're determined to ship things quickly or you're trying to deliver a certain caliber of UX, whatever those principles might be, it can be really powerful in these sorts of contexts because it, it helps make the decisions much, much more quickly than if there has to be a debate every time on those sorts of topics. So when you blend that with just experience of making those sort of calls in the past in either similar situations or, or quite different ones, I think that's where the, the sort of the art comes in. It's, it's much harder to be prescriptive about how you, you get to those choices. You've just got to consider the right things and, and make the call. Here's a, here's a question for you. Is the product manager the parent? <laughs> um, that's, yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking of it. Because um, I see a lot of similarities here between me as a parent and my two kids, 14 and 12 year old, uh, you know, giving them autonomy, letting them, letting them have responsibility, for example, for finding the coat that they've just lost or whatever, but I'm not doing it for them. I've just got to give them the direction and, and but, but also have the sort of credibility and, and get them to sort of follow me as well and, and coach them. Yeah, I think that, that, that works in, in some senses, certainly kind of bringing the best out of people, um, influencing, um, you know, sort of cajoling in certain situations. I think all of those behaviours align. I guess, you know, where I've seen um, the most effective teams, the teams that are consistently that deliver great outcomes, is where product is, is at the centre of a whole raft of stakeholders. So not um, qu quite overseeing in the same way a, a parent would, but um, right at the centre of, of lots of different perspectives. And yes, where push comes to shove, they are probably the decision maker in a, in a number of contexts. But I'd be looking to kind of position the, the, the product person that way because they you know, need to have one foot in a very commercial camp. They need to have another foot. They need to be able to empathize and understand where engineers are coming from, also product designers, but also um, teams like compliance or operations where you know, there's, there's certain strict ways of working and processes they need, they need to follow. Um, so, it, you know, you're being pulled equally in lots of different directions. And I think that's maybe a little different from being a parent. Um, but certainly some of the, the behaviours align quite nicely. Hmm. But I suppose if product managers are the parents, then what does that make the designers? The kids? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's sure where it gets a little tricky. Okay. Some, um, some designers might like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I can see that. All right, so 
the next part of, of this sort of product development process I wanted to touch on then is is design QA, which um, I think would probably be a little bit of a head scratcher for some people in that, you know, why is it product designers get their own special QA, quality <laughs> assurance opportunity? You know, where's the, the product management QA? You know, talk to me about that, Craig. <laughs> well, um Okay, so so what is design QA, right? So so design QA will typically happen after functional QA, sometimes in parallel. And I've worked in teams that, that where the, the 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 functional QA team and the, the design QA um, team, which is usually the designer that put the solution together, will do it in parallel. But typically, it happens afterwards, so that those bugs, the functional bugs, can get raised and then they can get fixed, and then the designer can look at it afterwards. Um, but fundamentally, though, design QA is very different to functional QA. So if you're doing automated testing or even manual testing, regression testing, whatever, in your functional QA team, you will have a test script and you will have a plan that you walk through and you know, your regression test against uh, other scenarios, et cetera, et cetera. Design QA is really more about um, taking the solution that you put together, you know, that's been encoded in those acceptance criteria on your user story, um, but going back to those original Figma files, that what would have been what the engineers would have built from, and making sure that the intention is still there, making sure that there's that um, that final sort of gatepost, if you like, to say yes, this is what we envisage this design looking like executed and, and, and with real data and, and actually working in a performant way. So, you know, design QA um, is typically a lot quicker. So in my teams, I advocate design QA taking no longer than, you know, an hour um, yeah. or two. Um, it needs to be time boxed. So whereas functional QA will keep going, doesn't matter how many bugs they find, they'll just keep raising them. And, and um, you know, it's then up to the up to other parts of the team to, to prioritize them later. Yeah. And I think, What's super important from my perspective is you, you calibrate things like that to the 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 level of UX you're trying to deliver, right? If you're if you're going for a really high caliber UX, you're going to have to you know put quite a bit of emphasis on, on that design QA because you you know that all those nuances are going to need to be accounted for. I think in a, a scale up or startup environment, it's probably more the kind of the bloopers, the the really big mistakes you're trying to catch there, and you're not quite so worried if you know there's slight visual misalignment with things you know you can probably live with that for a period of time and then just to round this one off uh, the reason i think design qa is important i feel like um you know the, the sort of relationship between the different disciplines here is that the the engineering team with the product with designers kind of bring the solution to the product manager and go look this is what we built you know, you you gave us that requirement initially. We gave we came up with some solutions for you. You decided which ones you wanted. We we tested the feasibility of these through, through feedback sessions and maybe even with users. We built the thing. We've got it to a level of quality now that we think satisfies your initial requirements. Here you go. Um, yeah. So I think yeah, absolutely, it's for us really to go through that process, certainly in the final stages of iteration, to get it the way we wanted it to be, and then bring it to you for for final um, sign off. And I have worked in product teams where the product manager does get final sign off of those user stories mm. and they don't get they don't exit sprint unless the product manager has, um, has signed them off. I mean, where, where do you stand on that that idea of, of uh, a kind of, you know, having a bit of a gatepost? Yeah, I think Utopia, the PM would do it. Um, but I think it 
there's just so many other things they're going to need to be working on. And it, I, I would rather they deeply understand the, the problems we should be solving than, than signing off solutions. And there's one, when you think about it, quite obvious reason for that. You can build a brilliant solution to the wrong problem, but it's still useless. So, yes, it might be not quite what you want. It might only be 80, 90 percent of what you thought you were getting. Not ideal, but at least it's solving the right problem. Um, that, that's the first point I make. The second one, I think this is one example of where there's a difference between a product manager and a product owner. Um, you know, I'd say a product owner is analogous, very similar to how we've used BAs when we work together. Um, so, you know, they'll deeply understand the detail of that solution. I think in some ways they'll actually be better positioned than the PM to say, certainly in the detailed sense, whether that, that solution is what they're expecting, what they specify. Um, always great if the PM can sign it off, but I'd just be very wary of, of distracting them because there's, there's all sorts of busy work. A PM could fill their day with stuff like that, right? And not do any of the commercial strategic stuff they, that they have to be doing. So last step I really wanted to focus on then is is what we've called release bundling and, and perhaps I'll I'll kick things off on on this one um, because in theory right every user story should be releasable that that's part of what what constitutes a, a user story um, now obviously not everyone frames their requirements their work to be done in terms of user stories and there's there's plenty of other very valid ways of, of sort of writing down or articulating requirements. So for me, I think there's a, there's a couple of key points here. Um, firstly, something can be in production, but it doesn't have to be visible to users, which on the face of it sounds obvious, but I think it, it's very easy to, to lose sight of that. And, you know, feature flagging tools like Split, Launch Darkly can make that pretty easy to execute in terms of something being in production, but users not being able to sort of see or touch it. Um, second point I'd make is, you know, you've got a real choice about when you start to market something, right? You don't have to have perfect synchronization between when something's launched and when it's, it's marketed. So you might consciously want to soft launch something. Um, maybe, you know, you, you feel like there's some, some risk around that and maybe just having a portion of your user base use it first, that that could be advantageous or just not shouting about it because you've got some of the big launch, you know, a week or two before and you want to sort of let people breathe a little bit. Um, but either way, um, when that pain point um, has actually begun to be solved and when you tell people it can be solved, don't has necessarily have to be, be perfectly aligned. Um, so I guess that's a couple of things that spring to mind from my perspective on on release bundling. What, what, what's your take on all of that, Craig? Yeah, I think this is really in the domain of the product manager at this stage more than it is almost any other discipline working with, you know, release operations um, or whatever as well. From a designer's perspective, I think there are a couple of key points here that mean that you should still be involved even at this stage of the process. Um, one of them is, you know, one of the great things about Agile in terms of how it breaks down functionality is about you know you know we've all we've all been there we've all come up with you know features that are are fairly extensive that we've needed to break down into separate um iterations or even separate components of a particular feature um, and that's great because it gives us that that sort of modular 
way of, of building and releasing something. But ultimately, sometimes you can release a feature. You, you could have conceived of a solution that covers multiple user stories as a designer. But if you end up only releasing parts of those, it might not actually be particularly coherent as a feature, or it might be fundamentally broken even at the worst case. You might be um, using copy in one of your um, dialogues, for example, that may talk about a button or a, or a piece of functionality that was actually another story that didn't end up getting bundled into a particular release. So, you know, obviously this is the responsibility of everyone to try and track and make sure that those dependencies, those prerequisites or, or, or essential bits of user stories are released at the same time. But again, I would come back to this point around, you know, the designer is the one who really sort of fully deeply understands and can hear, hold in their head that holistic user experience for how this solution should be. So they're, I think, really well placed. They're not the only one in the team, but they're certainly one of the best placed to be able to say, actually, look, I don't think if we were just to bundle that and that together into a release, it's going to be coherent for these reasons. So they can have a really, I think, important input into the discussions around what gets bundled. Yeah, it's a really good point, that one. It's very easy to overlook some of those dependencies. That's happened to me multiple times, and unfortunately. So, yeah, at some stage, you've got to take a step back and make sure the full flow works if you're going to expose it to users. Um, and sometimes it's it, it's tempting just to sort of hold your horse a little bit and, and wait until you're confident that that whole journey adds some value. Um, 